Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. Hello and welcome to your Let's Fix Football for this week. It's your host Gabe Lezra. Um, I am joined by uh, my my good friend Evan Matier. How's it going, buddy? I am good. I am good. How are you, Gabe? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, long couple days, but you know it's almost weekend, so that's good. Um, doing but, that doing that government shutdown hustle. Yeah, that that actually was quite intense at the beginning of this week. Uh, we did not. I did. I, I gotta say, I, I did not expect to have as intense a week. I just expected to have the government shut down for another week, but we were wrong. So that's, I guess, good um, in theory. Uh, so coming up for you on the show, we have Kevin McCauley, uh, who we have, uh, done a really cool interview with. We've talked about a lot of stuff with him, um, but primarily about his article about Jonah Gonzalez, um, the 18 year old, uh, American center defensive midfield prospect who switches the, uh, uh, nationality or not nationality, he switched his allegiance, uh, soccer to play for L3 in Mexico instead of the United States. So, uh, great, great discussion about that and about how the, uh, United States, uh, Soccer Federation is kind of systematically uh, overlooking, you know, talented uh, people from Hispanic and, and underserved communities. Fascinating discussion, I think. We also briefly touched on something that we were going to talk about, Evan, that I think we can now um, blast past, which is the kind of dumbness generally of the MLS uh, transfer window money allocation stuff which we wrote we had a pretty good show on or a pretty good article on ballon d'order obviously this this um show is hosted on ballon d'order so you can find it all there uh, very interesting piece but we discussed it with kevin so you'll hear it then um okay so why don't we just jump right in uh i think our first topic Obviously, I think we should go into USSF because they had their um, candidates forum in Philadelphia this week and, and their yearly convention. Um, but before we even jump into the candidates forum, we have uh, some really cool update for you guys because uh, the USSF is once again scamming the shit out of people. It's, it's great. Um, uh, hold on, hold on. I I am offended <laughs> that you would characterize anything that the U.S. soccer Federation has done as a scam. Last week, we did talk about how that they were trying to sell performance-enhancing vitamins to uh, to young players, and I and that yeah. you know, and then that was that was going to raise money to make U.S. soccer better. And today, they are selling for seventy dollars each the Ron, the Rondo ring. Yep, a vital training aid that is going to help get the U.S. back to the World Cup. Yeah, I want to defend quickly the uh, uh, the supplement thing. Like, I, I got to tell you, if you want a product that is going to repair the relationship that you have with your adult son, like, this is a great product for you. If you buy him these USF SF brand diet pills, you know, he will be very excited. Your ex-wife will be really pissed off. Uh, and and it's that's one step short of shooting him up with meth and having him run around in a circle, which he could now do if you purchase the Rondo ring, which is um, sort of where we are. I. Uh, yeah, so the Rondo ring, Evan, is um, it's a hula hoop, right? I mean, like that's I mean, that's what it is. It is it is a twenty inch hula hoop. Um, it is three pounds, but easily folded. 
Oh, easily um, folded. That's important. Right. So you, so you can put it in your Beamer when you're driving your kid to, uh, to soccer <laughs> practice, uh, which is very, you know, very important. Uh, it's very important to keep an eye on the demo that is producing U.S. soccer prospects. Um, it's going to help you with possession in tight spaces by playing the Rondo, which is a game that requires quick thinking and fast feet and the Rondo ring. You are literally quoting from the promotional material, aren't you? I am. I am reading what they have. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm just. I'm reading from the promotion. Yeah. Well, no. That's and it's important because they are pitching it to the exact correct demographic, which is rich, divorced parents who want to score a quick and easy, like you know, victory with their child over their ex, you know, spouse by buying them a, a seventy dollar hula hoop to run around. I mean, the thing about the rondo itself is that it's a normal and very expected soccer exercise where. You have a group of about you know six players in a circle and one person in the middle trying to steal the ball from the guys who are passing the ball or women who are passing the ball around. It is actually a normal, absolutely regular training game that is played all the time in uh, professional level clubs. It's actually quite it's actually so ubiquitous, Evan, that it's fucking in FIFA. Like you can yeah. play the Rondo to train in FIFA. Hey, do you know what you never see in the Rondo ever? Uh, a fucking hula hoop. No one ever has a hula hoop because there's you, no hula hoop. You, you just, just stand have to, in a circle. You stand in a circle, and also it doesn't need to be perfectly fucking spherical circle. What the fuck? Like who thought that it required the circle had to be exactly the size, like a, you know, exactly a single size and exactly spherical. That's like exactly not the point of this. Like the players need to be moving around the outside of the ring. Like <laughs> it's just so dumb. Like I don't, I mean, this is like, this is like if you were so like you know how you know as a warm up in basketball a lot you'll do a layup line and so everybody goes through and lays the ball up. This would be like putting some fucking you know laying some like cloth stripes or down the yeah. side like this is the layup lane. Don't go outside the layup lane. Right. It's so dumb and not not useful. Like what? And and if anything, it's, it's like actively $70. harmful. And it's seventy dollars. Seventy fucking dollars. I mean, just if you really, really, really want a circle, just like go buy a piece of fabric and make a circle for like a dollar. Oh my god, I know. And it's he's doing buying this. It's it's mind blowing. And that what really is amazing about it is, I think that's why I was so obsessed with the idea that like the the target audience for this is these like rich idiots right just like the supplements like as kevin actually mentioned before we even started our show the supplement thing is is is, is actually quite bad because essentially what you're doing is you're giving kids eating disorders oh, it's and, horrifying and like that's the same group of people that would feed their like slight like they are like i my my pudgy shit son is like not running fast enough we'd like shoot them with like adderall laced like uh, diet pills that same group of people are the people who like you know, a few years later when their daughter is like, you know, just beginning to play soccer or, or, or like slightly into the career, we'll go out and buy this $70 fucking piece of cloth hula hoop thing that makes the ball bounce weird when you pass it over it, by the way. I don't really understand the point of that. Uh, but yeah, so go out and buy this bullshit. I mean, uh, let me let, let me take this way too seriously for like one second. And, and I, I think that you can make a case that this is like beyond just being really fucking stupid is emblematic of part of what's wrong about like the entire U S <laughs> approach to training soccer. It's like, all we need to do is spend a lot of money, even if it's on really, really asinine training aids that actually do nothing to make the kids better because you could just do the Rondo without this stupid thing. But we can say we spent $70 on the Rondo ring. 
Yeah, it's the the kind of thing that when you're presenting it to a board, you say, this is how much money we've spent on developing players. And you you pretend, right, that that bullshit is somehow uh, indicative or, or useful when, when deciding the success of your program, which is exactly the point. That's the whole point. Uh, of this bullshit. So use use the seventy dollars to like buy a ball and give it to like some poor kid. You'll do a lot more for U.S. soccer development than buying fucking rondo rings. Or if 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 like that's if your game isn't quite like charity, pay pay seventy dollars towards someone's like meal budget while they're scouting. Like good god, yeah. like it's it's incredibly not useful to do this. Right. Uh, so. <laughs> I don't have much more to say about this scam. It is yeah, really like, another good scam. I'm glad we Great started scam. with it. Uh, but there is a slightly more serious thing, obviously, that went down in Philadelphia, which is that every single one of the USSF uh, president candidates uh, got to have a very uh, in-depth discussion with um, with uh, Alexi Lawless. <laughs> Well, some some were some of them did. some were non-moderated, but yeah, Alexi did a bunch of them. Uh, yeah, so some of them gave present normal presentations. Uh, I'm saying O'Brien Bird did one uh, with Hope uh, with Hope Solo, which um, she had some uh, amazing uh, and very fascinating uh, take on the sexual harassment stuff, which I don't feel super qualified to talk about personally, but like it's a little strange that like she was like, yeah, there's a lot of problems with sexual harassment, and then like went on to talk about how. Uh, the 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 uh, example she used was how when she was younger there was a lot of like foul talk in the women's Look, locker room, which is I, a strange in in on this. But I don't want to go too far out on a limb on this because I didn't see her presentation. But her entire campaign and what I've read about her presentation in general, this all feels like such a self promotional campaign for her. Kind of like yeah. a a vanity campaign. It's a like one part vanity campaign, one part rebranding effort to like tell her story um, because she she sort of left the national team with not the greatest public persona. Um, and I don't know. I'm I'm of, of all the candidates, I'm like least interested in what Hope Solo. Oh has yeah, to no, totally agree. She has um a very not a particularly interesting point of view either. I I would say. Um, and also she has a, fe- a pending felony case, so. You know, that's, that's, I, it just mm. seems like we don't talk about that enough. Um, yeah. So I think the people that kind of impressed, particularly what I've seen, uh, 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 were, I mean, to be, to be quite frank, I, the, the reception to, uh, to, to, to Carter's presentation was unfortunately, well, not even fortunately, but like it was, it was actually pretty good. People, yeah, she's going to win. She comes off well and, she she's certainly going to win, but like she she comes off pretty well. She's pretty approachable, affable human being, uh, and that and in it, at least uh, has to be a positive compared to the kind of hatred that everyone has towards like Gulati currently. Who, by the way, also interviewed by Alexi Lalas and said some dumb shit. But like we're not even yeah. going to get into that. Um, uh, so the the article that we we're reading also I didn't get to see this one, but apparently Michael Winograd gave a very good. Um, uh, presentation. He will not win, but he may be uh, maybe brought into whatever future administration he has. Given the presentation, given the way he's done, uh, 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 Kyle Martino did a pretty good job, as what we're seeing. Um, and then, I mean, I mean, I sort of liked. I liked Winata. Um, well, at least what I read about Eric, what Eric Winata said. Was about to just, get to him. Yeah, just because he. Um, I don't know. He. 
he he <laughs> this is kind of uh, you know, shares a perspective, but he seemed to be pretty far, far on the uh, burn it all down program, which is which is my program. Yeah, I was exactly like one of the reasons that Evan and I both like Eric Quinaldo is that he sees the issues at USSF as sort of much bigger than you know, just not even incre- like incremental fixes that some of these people would propose, or like basically cont- continuation, which Kathy Carter is going to be, but like. This is <laughs> what he was saying. I mean, like, he really did. He brought in a bunch of, like, experts. He he basically pitched a very aggressive overhaul of the entire system. And he's also an incredibly charismatic, affable guy. So, like, I, I also like – I mean, he just comes off as uh, – just a a person who really cares about burning this whole bullshit down, starting from scratch with a better system, which I don't know, man, it kind of makes sense. I kind of buy it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I, I think that given how bad the problems of us soccer have been revealed to be, how this wasn't, this isn't just a few, you know, marginal problems that caused us to miss the world cup. It's, you know, deep, deep rot in the heart of the system. And it's, it's, it's problems at us soccer. It's problems at MLS. It's, it's problems all over the place. I like that when is thinking in, in kind of radical systemic terms about what needs to change at us soccer, he wouldn't get everything that he's talking about. And I think one of the downsides of the one article that we read about it you know, that they thought was a downside is, oh, well, he's going to waste a lot of his time, for example, negotiating with MLS about getting on the FIFA schedule. Um, look, yeah, he's not going to succeed in everything he was going to try to do. Um, but I, I like the idea of shaking up the power structures that have gotten so complacent. And he's the guy who's going to come in and really knock heads about it. Yeah. And that's is necessary. I, I think that a lot of the que- the concerns that have been raised about him still stand, to be quite frank, like the issue with um uh, uh, the issue um, yeah. with the conflicts of interest, all that stuff, that that all still stands. So I would be okay also with uh, uh, now that I've that I I actually took a little bit of time to to read through some of these transcripts and and this article and like I I, I mean Winograd also seems seems pretty good. So I, I I like him as well. But I I mean ultimately this is all from nothing, right? Because we it's going to be ca- it's going to be Kathy, Kathy Carter. Carter and like it just is. This isn't a popular vote. This isn't an elect like this isn't an election. It's a corporate board meeting and the and that's why like when I when you'll hear this in the in, in our in our conversation with Kevin, but like I mentioned that the USSF is getting a big magnifying glass for the first time in a while and it, people don't like what they see, and but part of the reason, Evan, is that people don't like what they see because what they're seeing is a kind of corporate election. Right. I mean, if everybody you know paid a lot of attention to like corporate elections at any public company, and and for whatever reason were you know terribly invested in how that let's assume you worked for General Electric and you and there was a big issue on the table that that was going to be affected by who the next CEO was. You know, you might be really frustrated too, watching yeah. a lot of people talk about the issues that aren't the issues you care about because it's the voters, you know, because you're not a voter. And, and that's what's going on here is we just yeah. we, we care about this as fans in a different way than Federation members do. And they're going to vote that way and they're going to vote for Kathy Carter. I think the best we can hope for is if not getting someone like Martino or Ronaldo or one of these other guys in the organization somewhere, I think we can hope that this attention will 
keep a little bit of pressure on yeah. U.S. soccer, a little bit of pressure on Kathy Carter to not just be complacent. You know, she'll know that her connections got her the job, but hopefully she feels that her position is just a little bit tentative, that these people might be willing to jump ship. Um, if the, you know, if the pressure keeps up and she doesn't make the changes people are looking for. Right. And, uh, uh, so I think that basically wraps up our, our USSF section. Again, we have Kevin coming on to discuss some of this stuff, uh, and, and the MLS stuff, like, again, you should check out our, our article on Ballon d'Or. It's actually quite interesting about how the MLS, uh, 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 allocation system is extremely bad for clubs that want to, uh, become selling clubs like a lot of the good, you know, mid mid level leagues in Europe are right. Like um, I think the the classic example of this is uh, Ajax in in uh, the Netherlands, who were previously a continental power, but what they've done is they've developed an extremely good academy and basically run their entire club off of sales of you know young, talented, exciting players and they are really good at that. And their model has been featured in a number of different things and. Uh, basically that model would be extremely hard to pull off an MLS for the reasons outlined in our article. So like, like half of Tottenham Hotspur squad came through kind of the IAC system. So it's near <laughs> and dear to my heart. Like the entire backline, Davis and Sanchez, I think Alderweireld and Vertonghen came through there. Christian Eriksen came through there. Um, we're looking at a winger from there now. Like yeah. it's re- really, really cool. Um, and, and it's a niche in Europe and MLS absolutely cannot do it. And it's really frustrating. Um, so with that in mind, let's, uh, let's, uh, flip over and start talking a little bit about Europe because the main focus from Europe, I think right now, one of the biggest stories is the implosion and current crisis and really collapse of Real Madrid this season. It has been, I say this, you know, as a Real Madrid lover, it has been absolutely impossible to watch this team. They, they, it's amazing the drop off after the last couple of years, what's happened. And basically they've gone from being able to convert and score at a rate slightly higher than, you know, their expected goals uh, and, and sometimes much higher to being essentially constantly uh, out muscled and outworked by teams and then not converting their shots. So Madrid is hugely back of Barca. They have lost the league already. And this weekend they were, or this week they were eliminated from the Spanish domestic cup, uh, by a mid table team, Leganes. And it is an absolute embarrassment. It very likely will lead to the sacking of Zidane, which a lot of us thought was incomprehensible at the beginning of the season. My thought kind of on Zidane, I wanted to see if you would agree with this. I, I kind of figured he has as long to be at Madrid as Madrid stays in the champions league. Like the week after they get knocked out of the champions league, assuming they do before the, you know, before winning it. I think that's the week he gets fired. Yeah. I, I mean, we'll see. Uh, I think there's a lot of loyalty to him because he came in at a similarly disastrous period for Madrid actually. Uh, and, and really turned the entire club around after what was an absolute disaster catastrophe under Benitez. But you know, that, that love and loyalty only goes so far given, you know, the way the team has performed, like you can't keep having these things happen and you can't keep, you, you you can't have a situation where Real Madrid is looking at a struggle to qualify for the Champions League, right? Like that, the, right now Madrid is in fourth. They have a game in hand, so they'd really be in third. But like, if you're re- like, it, it's not a situation where you're like, you're comfortably second in the league and just that Barcelona's run away with this. Like they have, Barcelona's run away with this league. They have performed unbelievably. Like, could you imagine Madrid in the Europa League? Jesus no, Christ. Right. <laughs> and so like, that's the problem. Like if, if Madrid were comfortably second and Barcelona just run away with the league based on their like very, I mean, look, there've been a lot of luck, but there's also been a lot of skill. Barcelona is a good team. This always were a good team and they've 
you know performed really well this season. Uh, but but right now the problem is that Madrid's not there and they can't just focus on the Champions League. They have to actually continue to play La Liga and play hard because if they don't and keep losing points, they are going to drop out of the top four, which is absolutely incomprehensible. They are the back-to-back European like Champions League champions. They you know did the domestic double or the international double last year. They beat just this season. They beat Barcelona in the European Super Cup or the Spanish Super Cup and Manchester United in the European Super Cup. They've already won a, you know three trophies. Like it's it's incomprehensible how badly they've gone. And, um, but yeah, so one, one thing I wanted to talk about before there. And, and so like, let's just do this one really quickly, which is I got into a little bit into a fight with, um, not really a fight, but like I got into a debate with Martin Ziegler, who is one of the reporters, um, for the times. Uh, and he basically, I think was very dumb, should have like look at you know no hate like he's a he's a pretty good journalist he's a great journalist i don't mean any hate with that stuff i just he showed a chart that was like basically attributing real madrid's drop in form to their net spend since 2010 on players which to me is absolutely bonkers and like this this chart yeah sure it shows that manchester city psg united chelsea and barcelona are at the top of that list but like First of all, it's net spend. It, it actually has no indication on how much uh, outlays Madrid has made on players. So, for example, Evan, the year that Tony Kroos and James Rodriguez, the year after World Cup, right, those two players, huge additions to Real Madrid, uh, cost about 85 million euros to bring those in. Madrid also sold Angel Di Maria to Manchester United for uh, 75 million euros. So the yeah, net spend so fucking stupid. The net it, spend is quite low. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's I mean, it's the same thing that gets talked about with Tottenham all the time where they're, you know, Tottenham's net spend over the last like three or four years or something like that is actually only a couple million because they've been, you know, they've made good sales and, you know, flipping players on and they've reinvested that and that that's good business. Um, that's, you know, you shouldn't, the, the idea that you have to have, uh, you know, be in the red on player spending in order to be good is completely asinine. Sometimes it works. And so everyone can look at city and how they invested 500 million pounds or whatever stupid amount they did in the club. And that's fine. And they've done really well. And they but just invested more in an exciting more. young Spanish talent. Oh, and, but, but you know, United spent a lot of money too, and they haven't really gotten anywhere with that. Or one above the chart of Madrid, you know, in this, one above Madrid in this chart is fucking Arsenal, who has been a complete dumpster fire right. with their spending. So if you're not spending wisely, then it's not helping you. And then the, like the last point is, if you already have the best team in Europe, which up until this year is pretty clear that Madrid did, you don't need to spend a ton of money on players to make the best team better. If anything, right, like what Madrid has had done. Prior- like all of the transfer windows before this year uh, had been in going out and investing in low cost uh, young players who were like close to their contract exp- yeah. uh, expiration, who had buyout clauses, all that stuff. And Madrid sat out this bubble. Yeah. Right? I mean, how are how are you going to go and buy, especially for inflated wages and inflated transfer fees, Diabala or any other striker who's a first team world class attacking player if you don't have a place to play them? 
you know, you're not going to, it's not a good business strategy to spend that money on them if they're going to ride the bench right. and they're not going to fucking want to come to the squad to ride the bench. And, and so when your squad is like that, the move obviously is to do what Madrid has done, which is buy the young guys who you can develop in cup games and as in a rotational right. role who are willing at that point in their career to have a rotational role because they're not Diabala who would be worried about losing his spot in the Argentine side if he wasn't playing. Right. Uh, so that's that's that. I, I also wanted to shout out to Real Madrid Twitter, who have been an absolute fucking dumpster fire over the last uh, you know couple days. You guys have been absolutely out- <laughs> disgraced yourselves with the way you've behaved online. It is terrible. I want to, in particular, highlight the reaction to um, Kareem Benzema's video that he has recorded. Uh, Kareem Benzema is sort of like the guy everyone at Madrid, all the kind of uh, Madrid hater Madrid fans who really are just people who want to get angry online, like mad online people um, uh, ha- have gone after. And uh, so in, in particular, he's gotten a lot of hate for a video where he, the day after, right? It wasn't even the night of the day after the, the match against Leganes where Madrid was kicked there, uh, gotten out of the club, uh, 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 the Copa. He posts a video uh, in his car driving his whatever it is five hundred thousand dollar mercedes it does look beautiful evan by the way and like the video is just him you know turning the steering wheel to reveal that he's wearing like a fifty thousand dollar watch which is like the most baller shit i've ever seen and people are like wow what a douchebag this guy's such a bitch like how could he do that after the worst night in club history it's just like oh my god first of all calm down second of all this is actually cool instead of being, you know, bad. So maybe calm down. Benzema is so cool. Like, I mean, like this, <laughs> this dude is so cool that, you know, like normal players, like I just want to go home and like hang out with my family, like whatever. Benzema is like, yeah, I'm going to dress up like, you know, Miami area Coke dealer and go out to the club. <laughs> yeah. It's like, so like Harry Kane posted his Instagram the other day. It was like, can't wait to spend the night with the love of my life. And he's got like a picture of him and his wife and his kid. And <laughs> Loser. Ben, Benzim is like, which fur coat should I wear tonight? <laughs> which uh, $50,000 watch should I take to the club where I'm going to hang so, out with my incredibly shady friends? So the reaction to this video was really stupid. Cause it was just him showing off that he has really nice things. And of course he does. And his things are really cool. And I like seeing his really cool things because they're cool. I do sometimes sympathize with fans who are upset when like you see players going out and like partying really hard the night after a big loss. And it's not that I expect them to become like aesthetic monks during the season. It's more like, I, you know, I, as a fan buy the attention that I give to these players, like pay their salary and make them worth a lot of money. And I just want them to like, care about being good yeah these guys i mean like these guys just want the players to, to to feel i mean look the the charitable feeling about this is that they want the players to feel the pain of this stuff as much as they do but that's actually incredibly uncharitable to the players who do this this is their literally their job also like these these are human beings with uh uh you know just who who basically are just you? I mean, like Benzema is only a couple years older than us, Evan. And like, oh God, shut the fuck up! No, I mean, like, no, shut up. A lot shut of these up, kids, up, these, these people are kids, right? Like they're kids, and like, but like this, they, they, these fans who respond like this want these players to just kind I'm, of fuck off I'm, and be anhedonic, douchey monks after every loss. So two points. One is I'm really sensitive to the fact that I am now older than almost every sports player yeah. and that if I was a sports player, I would be considered on the downslope of my career. 
Um, this really, really bothers me. Yeah, extremely it's, it's, glad that ESPN had a uh, autoplay ad right now when I was trying to pull up our next topic. So very no, of cool course of they that. Did. And then second, like, yeah, man, I agree. And I don't want to take, I don't, I don't, I try not to take it too far because I definitely agree with you. Um, but it, it's just, it, it's a, it's a like social media awareness, a time and place kind of awareness for on the part of players. It's just like, I don't know. It, but this it, wasn't it, even it like, but this isn't even that. Like, this, this isn't even like him. The, some of this hilarious Benzema Instagram stuff, which which he does post occasion, occasionally. He didn't post one of those. He just posted a picture of him in his car. This isn't oh, even like yeah, him no, dressed just, up in like a, a a white shirt with like a huge gold chain uh, yeah. and like a fur scarf, like straddling two like essentially naked women, like he's posted on his Instagram occasionally. It's just him in his car with his fancy right. watch. This is not that. That's my point. Is like this is not that. Like we can have a discussion about what you do when a player posts like them out at the club at two in the morning. You know, two days before a match. Like that's a very different thing from this, which is just oh, I have nice things that I'm enjoying, even though we lost <laughs> a soccer match. Uh, so last two topics. First of all, before we even jump into the the semi-serious last topic. Leeds United uh, FC revealed what I think is charitably in the bottom five crests I've ever seen in my entire life. I don't know why Leeds keeps doing this. They have uh, reinvented their crest more times than I've I, I even knew was possible over the last you know fifty years. They apparently have a new one every five to ten years, which is an insanely large amount of turnover for stupid crests. And whatever so, reason for this one, Evan, is that it looks like they've, they've put Mr. Clean on their crest. <laughs> so there's two things that are funny about this. So the first thing is the crest is just objectively terrible. So it's like a shield that says Leeds United. And then it's got a picture of the from the, the neck cutting off the head from the neck down to the midriff of this man with his arm crossed across his chest and his fist over his heart. <laughs> And so this is the, this is it. And I'm not really sure if what this gesture this man is making is supposed to be. But I, I kind of agree with you that it might have something to do with selling me detergent. <laughs> well, I mean, like, it's like if Mr. Clean were, you know, the, 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 the dude, the bald dude from all those ads was actually really cut. Right. Like, and yeah. and everyone was talking about how, like people were going on making jokes about how they wanted to bang this dude. Well, this is sort of like just his torso, except for if he were also like a fucking Aryan nationalist about to do the Hitler salute. Right. It's like the start to a Hitler salute or you could see like, if you were going to write like a, I don't know, like a dystopian fascist future regime, I could see you designing this as the non Zeke Heil, you know, replacement salute where it's like a fucking like Klingon thing where you like, you know, pound your chest with your fist. But that, the second thing that's funny about this is they claim that 10,000 people were consulted in the making of this horrendous crest. And it's unbelievable. And then that, there's two I don't funny things that. about that. One is I don't fucking believe it because one, someone would have said this is a really bad idea. And two, everybody, like everyone on Twitter who's a Leeds fan apparently is searching for anybody, right. one person who will admit to having been consulted. The Leeds fan base can't be that big that no. nobody on social media would have been consulted about right. this fucking terrible crest. It's so dumb. And like what, what really, I mean, yes, all of that. Uh, I mean, like they, they clearly like talked to two people who had previously done the ad campaign for some detergent company. And they were like, check this out. And the way you can sell it is by telling 
people that you talk to 10,000 people that you really are just robots that you made online. And like, it's unbelievable. And what really gets me about all this shit, dude, is that they got dunked on by everyone. And to the extent that they got dunked on so badly that like other clubs piled on and the first thing that comes up when you look at their announcement tweet is them getting fucking dunked on by Zenit St. Oh, I hadn't noticed that's amazing. Yeah, it is un- like this just it, I don't even know really how to deal with this. And it's like Zenit like made their own version of this logo with their colors. And it's just the dude with his hand over his heart, except for with two fingers out. What it, actually, I think arguably is a better crest. Than the way Leeds did it. <laughs> yeah, is the two fingers a th- like? It's is probably it a, a Zenit thing. It's probably a Zenit thing, and it's entirely possible that this fist over the heart is like a Leeds thing that I'm not aware of, um, because I'm not I'm not one of the apparently many more than ten thousand Leeds fans since they managed to find ten thousand and nobody can find any of them. Yeah, yeah. to their to Leeds' credit, they have <laughs> taken the uh the the criticism to say it lightly in stride and are uh, seem to be reevaluating their choice of going oh really for- i didn't know that that's um yeah good for them because yeah, someone they, i mean the, the best owner- sorry go ahead you know, i was gonna say the the actually the owner of the club had a had a state where he's like this has not been my best day in the office we <laughs> needed to do more market research we're gonna basically reopen the book on this good as they should. I, I mean, look, you can always correct it. It's not like you had to do this. So, like, yeah. just go back and do a different one because the best dunk on this entire thing, including the Zenny, which is extremely funny also, is this guy was like, it took you six months to come up with this. This took me six minutes at my work, and it's already better. <laughs> and it's literally just the same crest where he erased the guy, made it yellow, and then put a, just a stylized picture of a white rose. Way better. Way, way yeah. better. Yeah, it's actually really good. And, and and I think that's one thing that people are really upset about is, like, the, what, the between the white rose and a few other, you know, historical crests and logos that Leeds has have, they have some good material to work from. And instead, they just went completely off that and did this kind of weird thing with this awkward awkward person. Um, and it's just never good. I think to completely detach yourself from the heritage like that. So this like <laughs> new shield with the white rose, actually really good crest. Yeah. Really good crest. And they, they have all the right ingredients there to make a really dope crest and a really cool uniform structure, but they just, they just ate it on this one and good on them for real, like for really taking this absolute bombardment of hatred and stride because that's that's the way you should. If you do something dumb, you should fix it. An American uh, club would 100% double down yeah, and be like, just well, we, are, we, already, we already spent a lot of money on the trademark, it, so just fuck you. Yeah, and they'd lean into it, and then they would release, like, a... Then they would, like, get these people who are, like, diehard, ride-or-die, you know, posting-war uh, dudes who would pop up on their feed to be like, I love it. How could you, uh, you know, be so rude to this club that you love so much? You piece of shit. Be loyal for once. And that, that is exactly <laughs> yeah. what would happen. That's what so, they would do. That's what they would do. Uh, last last thing I want to mention um, before we end, because, again, we have this awesome segment with Kevin. Uh, we're going to bring Ernesto back to chat about some developments in the FIFA case that kind of rule. I mean, look. <laughs> They do. They rule. Um, the the what I think more more like I think the the top line stuff that we want to just mention. There's one like quote and stuff that I want to discuss here quickly. But really, the 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 crushing hammer blows. Apparently, there's been a new book that uh, has come out that alleges that uh, Set Blotter. Um, uh, did a couple of things that are incredible. Uh, first of all, he apparently called President Obama and told him that Qatar would win the World Cup bid 
before the bidding was uh, before the shit was done. Like he just called him up and was like, they're not going to win because you didn't bribe the right people. First of all, uh, second of all, way, way, way bigger allegation where the lead is incredibly buried in this country, in this country, by the way, it's been unbelievably buried, but the, the there so this is the lead in the correct the correct way to do this in the, in the Emirati newspaper that we're reading. Qatar has been hit with fresh allegations of corruption over uh, its controversial 2022 World Cup bid, as a new book claims that state TV company BN Sports agreed a secret 100 million dollar deal with FIFA if they won the vote. So they did exactly what Evan and, and I have been saying they're going to do. Yeah, and you know what's fucking amazing is at least the way I've read the article, it doesn't seem like FIFA is actually denying it. They're just saying it wasn't that big, that bad. Which is amazing. It's just so cool. Yeah. So we're going to get Ernesto on to talk about all this, but it's it's awesome. And what I wanted to do is just read and not even what not even like about the 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 be in stuff. The the quote from Blotter, so apparently he did get interviewed for this, but the quote from Blotter is incredible where the, where he talks a little bit about so uh uh the Qatari heir, Sheikh Jassim Altani, ran or threatened well then did uh threatened to then did run uh uh No, I'm sorry, Bin Haman, my bad, excuse me, Bin Haman uh ran against him uh for FIFA president. And so uh uh, basically Blotter said, so a lot of people allege that Bin Haman dropped out of the world cup because he was paid off. Blotter basically said, um, no, that's not what happened. What actually happened is that Blotter emailed, uh, Sheikh Jassim Maltani and asked him to make Bin Haman drop out. And Sheikh Jassim Maltani is the crown prince in Qatar. So, like, he emailed this man who could have Bin Haman thrown in jail uh, and said, get get him out. And then he did. Uh, and then, you know, Blotter said, and I, I swear to God, this is the quote, quote, everything, everyone thinks he pulled out because of the ethics charges. It has nothing to do with the ethics charges. It was because he was told to by Qatar. They, because they promised me he would not stand. Sheikh Jassim was here in Zurich. We were at a meeting, the three of us. Sheikh Jassim told him to withdraw. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I'm running out of ways to express outrage. I mean, it's certainly... <laughs> I mean, there's no surprise anymore. No, it's not. But it's so cool because it's like, he's literally just like, the dude running to unseat me uh, didn't pull out because of his rampant and my rampant corruption. No, no, here's that's the thing. He pulled out because I called the ruler of his country because I did some mob shit to forbid him <laughs> because the, the, because the family told him to sit the fuck down. Right. It's like it's not your time. Like and and it's just unbelievable. And and what really begs the question is why on earth Blotter would pretend that he had this kind of pull. And it, it just seems to me that he has this, uh, he's basically just confirming that he has this unbelievably tight relationship with uh, the, the Qatari Royals going back to when they got the World Cup bid, right? And like, this is just absolutely bananas. And yeah, Bin Haman not, not, would not have been a huge improvement over Sepp Blatter, to be quite frank. Also a crazy corrupt dude. I'm sure he would have milked FIFA for all it's worth because again, as we've said many times, FIFA is is designed to be and run as a vehicle to enrich a small cabal of people who are absolute garbage fire. Um, so with that, Evan, unless you have any objection, why don't we go, uh, go into our interview with Kevin?
That sounds great, man. All right. So uh, we will uh, we will be back next week where we'll be chatting with Ernesto about this guitar stuff. And until then, enjoy this uh, this interview with Kevin. All right, we're back. This is our uh, interview segment. I am very excited to welcome to the show uh, my friend Kevin McCauley. Uh, Kevin, welcome to Let's Fix Football. Uh, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to talk to you because you wrote a really really good article, um, very interesting about the uh, U.S. Soccer Federation and their kind of systemic uh, uh, issues with uh, you know, lower income Hispanic and Black players. And I, we're going to jump into that, but I just want everyone to uh, know that Kevin is one of the people that you know. I know I know we have a chunk of listeners who come from Managing Madrid, so um, I know that <laughs> I figured you guys would be interested in knowing that. Kevin is actually one of the reasons that Managing Madrid is uh, really a website at all. So uh, very influential in the very beginning of, of the website, which is amazing. And I was actually talking with Keon the other day. Managing Madrid is going to su- su- uh, celebrate its 10-year anniversary in 2020, which is bonkers. Um, so uh, just uh, let's just jump in. I mean, uh, Evan, uh, we've prepared a, a series, like it's just you know done some background reading, but I think the the sort of you know first step here Kevin why don't you just uh kind of explain what the circumstances were that led to uh this article and sort of what what's going on here so Jonathan Gonzalez who's a 18 year old midfielder plays for Monterrey in the MX he's Mexican-American and he came up through uh the American youth national team system but he was uh he was not called in to national team camp after the u.s failed to qualify for the world cup when a lot of young players were called in which is uh that in and of itself is fine because there's a lot of talented young american players and uh they weren't all going to get called in but apparently he didn't even get a phone call to like explain to him why he he wasn't he wasn't called up and kind of was like started wondering if like maybe he wasn't terribly valued by the the federation uh meanwhile mexico is actively courting him Hmm. having you know like the, the big wigs actually come to his home and talk to him. And uh, he decided to pick the team, the national team that he felt valued him more and filed his one-time switch to Mexico, which led to Soccer America doing an interview with a guy named Brad Rothenberg, who's a co-founder of Sueno Alianza that does uh, camps for mostly Hispanic youth, kids that can't afford to pay for really like high-level coaching because uh, really in, in soccer with, uh, youth clubs being not just pay to play, but the the development academy teams, the you know the top level ones, can cost as much as thirty five hundred dollars a year for kids to go to. Um, so Sueno Alianza identifies a bunch of identifies a lot of really talented kids who get ignored by the system. A lot of them sign contracts with the right. uh, and uh, Jonathan Gonzalez is one of them. So Brad Rothenberg, the co-founder of Sueno Alianza, does this interview where he just totally ethers uh, yeah. American American soccer system, uh, which kind of led me to ask some ask some questions of people that were uh, not not completely addressed or needed to get you know dive more into uh, in that interview. And that was kind of how the article came about. So, uh, in this is Logan in the background. He is uh, Hi, Logan. Re- <laughs> he's reacting uh, to the outrage of the way USSF is conducting itself. But uh, yeah, I think one. Of, I mean, like obviously the kind of top line 
um, discussion here is is centered around uh, uh, this interview and, and, and these comments, but also about sort of the reaction that people have had kind of generally to the way this has all been revealed. And one of the reasons I, I think that I've seen you point out, not just here, but in other places, is that, um, that this is kind of a big deal right now, right, is because perhaps if the U.S. qualifies for the World Cup, perhaps, you know, if the World Cup is actually even semi-successful, this isn't this kind of sy systemic problem isn't really going to be addressed, right? And that's sort of the way they've been dealing with, you know, kind of sweeping this stuff under the rug until now. Uh, so is that, I mean, like, is that basically accurate? Or do you think, like, this was going to come out eventually regardless? Because it, it, it does seem to me that, like, there's just a huge magnifying glass on, on USSF right now. I think that the men's national team missing the World Cup was a huge catalyst to people who have known about this stuff for a very long time uh, but didn't necessarily want to rock the boat too much uh, to get them talking because there have been some positive changes, uh, slow, and most of them not necessarily helping uh, poor kids, but there have been some <laughs> changes. The youth national teams have gotten better. Um, and, you know, there was some, some reason for optimism, even if a lot of things were really bad. And then when the men's national team missed out on the World Cup and Sunil Gulati announced that he wouldn't run for re-election for U.S. soccer president and uh, Bruce Arena was fired and no one was replaced, a lot of these people thought, like, well, what's, what, do I, what do I have to lose by, by speaking my mind on these topics? What do I have to lose by telling the truth? Uh, there's, there's no one to hurt. There's no one who's going to be able to get back at me. Like, it's, it's, right. it's time to tell the truth. And it wasn't just, uh, you, know, you know, pivoting quickly to the, to the Jonah Gonzalez stuff, it wasn't just uh, that the U.S. national team, you know, men's national team didn't realize or didn't uh, call him. It was that they didn't even realize this was a question, right? Yeah, and there's been a lot of, like, back and forth about this this week, you know, after my post came out. Um, pretty clear that somebody's lying about something here where you have... Uh, Thomas Rongen, the, the U.S. soccer's one scout, by the way, U.S. soccer has one full-time scout for uh, the whole country, saying that he'd, he'd visited him and Todd Ramos, the U20 coach, had called a few times, um, and Richie Williams, the under-17 coach, had been in contact with him. Uh, and then you have other people, Jonathan Gonzalez's dad being one of them, saying that like uh, Thomas Rongen never came to his house, that Richie Williams like threatened Jonathan on the phone and said, you only have 10 minutes to decide if you want to come to residency. And then Richie Williams saying that isn't true. Um, so in that particular situation, I don't think anyone really knows what happened. And it's very clear that someone's lying about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I guess my, I'm kind of inclined to believe Jonah Gonzalez, right? I mean, he is, he's the one with way less to lose, like, or less right, reason I don't, to lie, I guess. In that I, don't, situation. I don't see what Jonathan Gonzalez's father has to gain by lying about this. Yeah. Yeah, he like he Gonzalez already made his choice. He's not coming back, and he doesn't have to say anything if he doesn't want to. Right. Uh, except for his dad sees these guys out here potentially lying about it and not wanting to, you know, wanting to, you know, not be drugged through the mud. And I think part of this for me is that like I can we can you know given the institutional dysfunction at USSF and given the uh, I mean the way that this has been ex dis uh, described on both or on all the different fronts. I, I think, I mean, like I am extremely convinced that a lot of this stuff happened exactly in the way Jonathan Gonzalez's family uh, uh, described it. Like the idea that someone's going to call you and threaten you and say, you've got 10 minutes to decide. Like that's a classic, like American bluff 
uh, tactic, and it's definitely comes on too strong, especially for like an 18 year old who's making an incredibly important decision about his life that. I mean, frankly, it, it does come with the territory, but it's also like as I so I wrote a, a article following up a little bit about some of the backlash that I saw uh, towards uh, Gonzalez just as someone who's also, you know, a dual national with uh, being pulled between two countries. And like, that's a tough you know thing to do at 18 uh, and then to have the, the scrutiny that was leveled at him from some parts of uh, the media landscape and some of the uh, the online you know hatred must have been a little bit uh, you know a little bit imposing on him, right? And that's something that uh, Hugo Perez, who is uh, Salvadoran American, and uh, Jonathan Gonzalez's former youth national team coach, and uh, Hercules Gomez, who's Mexican American, something both of them told me for the story that like there aren't enough people at U.S. soccer who who understand this, who understand what it feels like to. Uh, feel like you are attached to two countries and you are really a citizen of two countries. You have family in both. You have strong attachments to both. Um, and that, you know, it's a really tough decision. And it's especially weird that you have somebody like Tab Ramos, the under-20 coach, right. who's Uruguayan-American, uh, saying things like, if you feel American, you should play for America. And if you feel Mexican, you should play for Mexican. Like, you'd, it's really disappointing because you'd think that him, of all people, would would kind of understand what was going through Jonathan Gonzalez's head and why it was such a difficult decision for him. Yeah, that was something that really, really struck me. I mean, like one of the things that that really gets me about some of this stuff is that um, if anywhere should be open to this particular plight, it, like it, it feels like America, like our country, you know, it, it is kind of shitty in a lot of ways. But like what we we do have is a lot of people who are American dad or something dash American, right? And like. That is a big part of, you know, what what we are. And we don't, well, I mean, previously maybe, <laughs> uh, we haven't really turned people away. And, like, it's it's really dispiriting to hear people who should understand, like, like Tab Ramos, exactly what this guy is going through. And, like, like I said in my piece, and, like, I think a lot of these guys would say also, if you ask someone to make a, a decision like this, what team, what country they're going to represent uh, – for the rest of their life at age 18, that's a different choice. At least for me, it would have been a different choice at 18, 20, 22, all of these different ages. And like, that's, you know, to put someone through that and, and, and not to have any empathy, uh, is, is upsetting. <laughs> and you would, you can kind of see where Gonzalez is coming from on some of this stuff. And you'd also think that somebody who is a youth national team coach and has been uh, a youth coach at even younger levels, like Tab Ramos has, would understand that, uh, 18 year olds and people who are younger than 18, um, they're going to change their minds about things once yeah. in a while. Um, and they're, they're going to want to feel valued. They're going to want to feel like somebody has their back. Somebody cares about them. Like, this is just like really basic stuff that I feel like if you're a youth soccer coach, you should understand about teenagers. And, uh, yeah. it's like weird that these people who coach teenagers for a living and have for decades, kind of like fail to understand how teenagers think. Well, Gabe, Gabe and I have talked about this a little bit in context of like college recruiting, right? So like college recruiting is not that different from what U.S. soccer at least should have been doing with Jonathan Gonzalez. And it's all about that, right? It's all about sitting down in the living room and making the kid feel comfortable about his future, being in the hands of these kids. Like that's what you do. And the idea that U.S. soccer wasn't doing that and has this weird ideological stance apparently against doing that is kind of the, the really striking thing alongside the just gross incompetence of not – uh, cap tying him against Portugal earlier in the year. 
Yeah, and right. I, and the a word that people I talk to use over and over is arrogance. Like mm. they think they're too good to do that, and that players should come to them. And any player who doesn't who doesn't want to come to them without being recruited is not a player they want, which is um, stupid. Yeah, you know, you Spain was the the best team in the world, won the Euros and the World Cups, and even they're actively recruiting Diego Costa away from Brazil because they understand every every good player they can get away from in other countries an advantage to them it matters yeah um it doesn't it, even if you already have the best squad in the world you should be trying to do that and that the the u.s u.s soccer thinks that they have the luxury of not doing that is ridiculous absolutely i mean this is <laughs> i got into a twitter fight with alexi lalas about this actually where i was based i i you i literally used the diego, uh, diego costa uh, example uh, because of course, like, every international team that has any you know understanding of how this works understands that first. Of, I mean, like first of all, you want to have to put out the best team possible. So I remember like one of the earlier Spain teams you know, recruited Marco Senna, who is a uh, who is also you know uh, not born in Spain or whatever. I mean, like I remember like Sergio Baca plays for Spain's like national basketball team. So like. It's it's it, it seems really stunning that some of these guys would uh, would just have this level of arrogance. I mean, like, and I, I my feeling is that it comes from, and we're going to get to your articles early because we have a lot of questions about that too. But my feeling is that it comes a little bit from this uh, uh, dominance that the United States has had at a lot of levels in a lot of sports. So, like, if you're called to play for, like, if 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 you want to go and you're good enough to play for the NBA Dream Team or whatever, the, the USA Basketball Team, then you're going to want to go play for them and no one else because you're going to win the gold every year. And if you're called to, uh, you know, the US Gymnastics Team or whatever, like, that's good and 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 it's 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 the top of the sport. But we're just not there in in men's soccer. Uh, you know, it's different a little bit even on the women's side, but like we're not there in men's soccer. It's not a hugely prestigious thing to go play for the U.S. men's national team. If anything, it's actually more prestigious and more, you know, life-changing to play for L3. And even if we were there on the men's national team side, uh, you would still run into this right. issue where if if you even if the U.S. men's national team is the best team in the world uh, and they are not actively recruiting you, they're not making you feel valued, and Mexico is telling you, you're going to be our starting, you know, our starting player for ten years, and we want you really badly. You still might make the switch. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, so let's. Uh, so Evan, I, uh, I, I'm going to turn it over to you a little bit um, to ask some questions. I think about uh, you know some of the different uh, uh, parts of uh, Kevin's article that we discussed earlier. Yeah. So, so Kevin, because your 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 article you said started with the Jonah Gonzalez thing, but reading it, I think the the most interesting kind of new contribution of the conversation that's happening right now is what you uncovered about how U.S. soccer thinks about you know identifying and developing uh, players from Hispanic communities, inner city communities, just under generally underserved communities in general, um, and the answer being that they basically don't give a crap apparently. Um, that they're they're not showing up to um, to training camps. That they're not they're just not actively recruiting that, and they don't seem to think that it's a valuable resource for um, for U.S. soccer in general. Right, uh, and in the the Rothenberg interview in Soccer America, he said that uh, Tony Lepore, the U.S. soccer director of talent identification, informed Sueno Alianza that. Uh, they didn't. They weren't interested in participating because they hadn't found any any elite players. They just didn't think it was valuable, um, and that's that's true. I I got someone from U.S. Soccer to confirm 
that for me that that's wow. uh, that was genuinely Tony Lepore's opinion, um, which I think tells you a lot about uh, what they not just what they think of underserved communities and what can be gained from working with people like like Alianza, but just like what they think of themselves. They think that they they have all the answers and that what the you know the camps they run, the scouts they have, the way they identify players, uh, you know their affiliated clubs are the answer. Um, and that's like really the problem. It goes back to what we were talking about with with dual national players. It's a symptom of the the same disease, which is arrogance. Yeah. Uh, so I, I actually just wanted to follow up on that. I, I I mean, one of the things that really strikes me about this is when I was when I was coming up uh, playing a lot of soccer, I I also was like you know semi in some of these programs, and it it did seem very clear that unless you were very much identified from quite a young age. These programs were not really interested in you. And that was amazing to me because I, I play, I mean, like I played with some players who were quite, quite good and better than some of the people I saw playing on the, some of the higher level, like ODP people. And they just didn't care because they weren't on the list from, from when they were 12 or whatever. And it, it's just, it's this whole disease of arrogance, as you mentioned, but it's also on top of that, right? It's also, if you can't, break you can't cut in when you're that when you're younger then you're not going to cut in when you're older and that itself is a huge problem because people's talent develops at different uh uh you know at different speeds people's bodies develop at different speeds it it just seems like a horrible oversight and this is why if you look at uh big uh, european club teams that have academies they don't they don't cut kids loose until they're 17 18 years old you know if they right. if they sign somebody when they're young um, and they're not, you know, they're not really getting better. Uh, they're they don't they don't grow as quickly as they thought. Like they still give these kids chances until they're 17 or 18 years old, and they're still looking to sign kids who are 15, 16, even if they're not in their system yet, because the you know people who have who have worked in soccer and worked on developing soccer players for a long time know this. They understand that like once in a while. A guy who you think is just is just okay, and who you're thinking we're probably going to cut when his you know scholarship runs out when he's 18. Suddenly, when he's 17, it just clicks, and he goes from being an average player that you're sure you're going to cut in a year to the you know crown jewel of your academy. Like that shit just happens. Yeah. So I mean, so some of the interviews that you did kind of mentioned for solutions things that we've heard before in reference to other issues for player development. So futsal courts, uh, working on pay to play, lowering the cost of entry, lowering the cost of finding good coaches. Um, but I kind of wonder if those sort of those solutions that are supposed to bring the cost of soccer down. Um, but don't focus specifically on outreach to underserved communities are sufficient, or if you think that U.S. soccer needs to um, needs to have more targeted solutions for, say, reaching out to the Hispanic community, maybe going to um, Sueno Alianza um, uh, training camps, or, or if there's other things that U.S. soccer sh should be doing in in you know in that direction, other than just the the normal solutions that we hear all the time. No, it's very much an outreach problem, probably even more so than uh, cost of play or, you know, available facilities, number of players in the game. Um, I think that failure to have, like, really positive outreach to Hispanic communities is a huge problem. And I think Hugo Perez and Hercules Gomez said as much that even even bigger problem than participation numbers or, or barriers to entry is that there just aren't 
enough people in in U.S. soccer in MLS teams who can who can speak to these kids who can go to their you know their their like club coaches their whatever if it's AYSO or a rec team or whatever who can who can speak to their coaches and make them feel like they're going to take care of those kids who can go into their their homes and have dinner with their parents and make them feel like you know my club is really the best place for your kid to be uh, that's that's way more of a problem than mm-hmm. than cost of play issues mm-hmm. so the real solution is more like you know that there's a the problem is there's a cultural blind spot and the solution yes. then is to try to bring the people in who can bridge that gap between this community that has a lot of talented soccer players in it um, and the institutional structures that can get them noticed and get them right. into the the program. And at the same time, convincing the uh, you know the coaches, the directors of these programs that like, hey, this kid who's who's never had a, a licensed coach before, he has he has value to this program, like. And it, maybe it'll take you six months to catch him up and it'll look like he's really behind in the training drills, but like that's worthwhile for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's yeah. another really tough thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was really interested in, in, in uh, with the, the section of your article about FC Dallas and what they were doing kind of in this exact vein in the Dallas area to try to bring players in who hadn't had coaching. They were a little older, 14, 15, 16, um, and trying to bring them into a developmental program. Um, and I was interested in it because the the main, um, I guess, pushback or the, the excuse given as to why there couldn't be more outreach is, oh, the U.S. is so big. There's no way that U.S. soccer can possibly devote resources to the entire country. And I guess in a sense that's true. But what's encouraging about something like what FC Dallas is, does is it it raises the possibility of a more decentralized system where local clubs are able and encouraged um, to to have programs like that and hopefully get you know, positive feedback by having successful players come through who either contribute to the first team or able to be sold on. Um, and I was wondering what you thought about, you know, how to expand that FC, encourage other clubs to pick up that FC Dallas model um, so that this isn't something we're relying on, you know, U.S. soccer implementing top down because I don't really trust U.S. soccer to implement anything. Yeah, the the real big takeaway that I had from talking to Fernando Clavijo, the uh, technical director of FC Dallas is that uh, they just they just showed up, <laughs> and other people don't <laughs> don't show up, and right. like that's the secret. FC Dallas has signed the most homegrown players. They play the most homegrown players in their starting eleven. They've sold the most homegrown players, and the reason that for the the big reason for their success is that they cared when other people didn't, and they understand like okay, we can't. Not only is the United States big, but Texas is huge. Yeah. Like we can't possibly begin to identify all of these kids and hold camps for all of these kids. Um, But you know what we can do is if someone else is trying to do it for us, we can pay for a plane ticket and a hotel and go watch some kids. Yeah, Um, seriously. That's that's what all the Liga MX clubs do. That's how Monterey found Jonathan Gonzalez. (laughs) Somebody else does the work for him, and they're like, okay, we'll send send a scout there. We'll pay for a plane ticket and a hotel and some meals, and, you know, we'll spend $1,000 to go look at somebody. Because, you know, it's cheap. And if we find one player, like, that's worthwhile for us. And even if we go there for 10 years and we never find any sing- any player worth offering a contract to in 10 years going there, like, how much money did we lose on that? How much opportunity cost is there? Like, how much did we, we lose out on? Very, very little. Right. Um. So if other people are, like, like not just Alianza, but there's other, there's other ones, too. Like, if, if other people are willing to do the work to, like, identify these kids and get them into some kind of 
you know, organized camp, like all you have to do is show up and see if you think any of the kids look like they're good. Uh, yeah, I guess I, you know, on the flip side of hoping that MLS teams do this, uh, the other problem is that MLS teams kind of suck, and it's just really concerning if you know that this has already kind of been proven successful, and it doesn't seem to be happening elsewhere because the MLS owners kind of suck. Right, and I think a lot of MLS head coaches suck too. You look at the numbers of uh, you know under twenty one players, or even not just under twenty one, even older than that, under twenty three players who get playing time. Uh, in, in MLS who are who are homegrown, it's like it's so tiny. It's like one point five percent of minutes were given to under twenty three players that came from well, it's MLS. Horrendous. It's so tiny. <laughs> and, uh, so you have you have a club like LA Galaxy is a really good example. LA Galaxy has a good youth academy. Um, we can debate over whether it's the best in the country or it's the, as good as it should be. But for the the general standards of American soccer, LA, LA Galaxy has a really good youth academy. They don't they don't promote their players to the first team. They just don't give them chances. I mean, that's and that's, that's that... the whole problem that they just they they're really good at developing players and they either completely destroy their careers by leaving them in the reserves until they're 25 or they go to Mexico. As they should though, if you're a kid. I mean like that and that's the thing what really gets me about this whole model is that I'm I also my understanding and and we're we're working on understanding this uh but my understanding is that some of the MLS wage structure is actually built to encourage teams to have homegrown players right and so uh, yeah, they don't count against your salary cap I mean like that in and of itself should be a reason to at least give your promising kids a, a shot and if if you know the teams are I mean it just feels like the teams are stuck in this model of a retirement league and like there are teams obviously that are breaking that and it has been changing but like if you're putting out a 37 year old veteran who used to play in like you know be a real or whatever for whatever mls team like that is actually not a particularly good use of your resources if you have like a 19 year old uh, uh exciting prospect in the same position you actually really should given not just given the uh the wage structure but like just generally like give that kid some time Especially, well, especially if you're shit like Galaxy was. Yeah, yeah right. That's it's, what's it's unbelievable. It's especially bad for Galaxy because, one, the Galaxy want to have some big stars that, uh, you know, sell tickets and have name recognition. And, two, they don't have a very good team. Uh, and, three, uh, you have six teams from your conference that make the playoffs. So, like, you can suck <laughs> and still make the playoffs. Um, all of the incentives are there for them to give these kids a chance because – uh, you can spend a lot of money then on your your top line players, so your top eight players in your team. You can spend the vast majority of your cap on those players, um, and then you can still field a good team if you're playing your kids because they don't count against your cap. No, it's uh, just... So it's extremely advantageous for them to play these really good kids that <laughs> we they need, develop. We need, we need some MLS owners to play a few saves of football manager, and then they'll figure it out. <laughs> I, I feel like some people might figure it out now that New York City FC is selling Jack Harrison to Stoke for $4 million. Yeah. Like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe if we actually, like, told our coaches that they have to, they have to play these guys, uh, we'd start making some money. Well, right. and the, the interesting thing about that, and just to, because um, we don't have too much more time, uh, just to, to, to pivot to that for a second, like, we actually um, ran an article from a uh, from someone who knows the the kind of ins and outs of this policy a little bit better. But my my understanding was that MLS also 
kind of restricts the amount, total amount of money that you can, if you're a club, that you can make out of becoming a uh, a club, a selling club. Is that different for homegrown players? Like if you if you develop a young kid and then sell him off, is that different than if you like you brought in someone and then sold him off? Uh, yeah, you get to keep a higher percentage if you're homegrown, but uh, you do still have to give some cut to the league, and uh, the amount of money that you can convert into allocation money so that you can use it to like you know make your team better, buy down you know cap hits and stuff like that. Uh, is limited to six hundred fifty thousand dollars. So yeah. if you if you sell a player uh, for ten million dollars, let's say uh, the league is going to take two point five million of that, you get to keep you get to keep uh, you know six point nine million in just cash. You get that money, um, but then you can only take six hundred fifty thousand hmm. and convert it to allocation money. Um, so if you sell a player for 1.2 million dollars or if you sell a player for 10 million dollars uh you you still get to keep the difference in the money but the difference in what you can do with your like cap to improve your roster is basically the exact same that it, it seems like a strange <laughs> incentive structure the way that mine a little mind-boggling mind yeah <laughs> it's well it's it's very much like from an era when the idea of selling an mls player for 10 million dollars is like completely incomprehensible <laughs> and then they just haven't updated it <laughs> i mean i actually kind of get the taking a cut like i don't i mean other t other leagues don't really do that but i get it a it little bit like it's super whack, it, it but, is okay it is a little whack but, but like the it. idea that you can't spend the more than a certain amount of money on your on your cap and all that stuff like that is that is extremely absurd to me. And like, if you if you take that and then meld it with our conversation from earlier, what it means is that uh, these MLS clubs, when they sell someone, so like NYCFC now has this chunk of money from the Harrison sale that they can't put back into investing in their cap in their players. They have to either invest it, and they can invest it in things like their their uh, their stadium, their you know. But also in their youth development program, which would allow them to fly scouts around places, like just like why not? <laughs> yeah, so they can they can invest it in all of that stuff, but they can't invest it into increasing player salaries, basically. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's one of these things that in, like these uh, the, these random weird intricacies of the American sports system that ends up with these extremely strange outcomes that need to be then re-bargained re in whatever next negotiation you have between the league and the players and the and whatnot right like i right and in the last cba negotiation the players kind of gave up on a bunch of this stuff because they wanted some form of free agency because mls was so backward that it had zero form of free agency like, your contract expired it didn't matter you could go abroad if you wanted, but you could not like if you you couldn't go to another team in MLS. You were stuck with that team, um, which is uh, horrible. And FIFA should probably crack down on that. But uh, <laughs> that was the that was the deal, and the players wanted to get rid of that, obviously. Right. So they conceded on a lot of other issues to make sure they got that. Um, so the the next CBA negotiation should be pretty interesting because now they don't have that one big albatross hanging over everything like the one trump card that the you know the owners can play like oh you know if well, you want if you want you know this we can't give you x y or z um, that's not that's not there anymore so right. the next CBA negotiation should be interesting well at least some of the owners should be open to you know raising at least the percent like that that fixed dollar amount of allocation money right. 
I think there are increasingly a lot of owners in MLS who want to raise the salary cap. They want there to be more DPs. Uh, they would like that allocation limit raised. I still think that even the really like rich, ambitious owners don't want the cap to go away entirely. Because let's be real, they got into MLS because it's a safe investment because yeah. costs can only get so out of control. Um, but would the likes of Atlanta and LAFC and NYCFC like to see all of that stuff go up? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I I got to tell you, one of the things that I think is actually really good about the general American sports systems are that they they actually really do encourage this type of parity with the revenue sharing and all that stuff. And so you can actually have I mean, look, obviously, we haven't seen that in MLS, but we have back to back champions. But, you know, they've done a good job constructing their squad, Toronto FC. And, you know, the 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 fact that there is this level of parity is pretty cool in in the United States as as opposed to like some of these duopolies and and whatnot in Europe, um, uh, so I yeah that's uh, I, don't know, I just I I do think that's interesting though I mean uh, obviously there are a lot of pluses and minuses. Um, all right, well Kevin, thank you so much for coming on to discuss this. Uh, it's been absolutely wonderful uh, chatting with you. We'll have to have you back on at some other point in time, man. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. All right, Evan, and then uh, until next week. Great. Oh, yeah. I got the perfect song for the kids to sing. And all my people that's drug dealing just to get by. Stack your money till it gets sky high. We weren't supposed to make it past 25. Jokes on you, we still alive. If this is your first time hearing this, you are about to experience something so cold. We never had nothing handed, took nothing for granted, took nothing from no man. Man, I'm my own man. But as a shorty, I looked up to the dope man. Only a dope man. I knew that wasn't broke, man. Flick and start a coach, man. Man, you don't know, man. We don't care what people say. For my niggas outside all winter Cause this summer they ain't finna Say next summer I'm finna Sitting in the hood like community colleges This dope money here is Lil' Trey scholarship Cause ain't no tuition for having no ambition And ain't no loans for sitting your ass at home So we forced to sell crack rap and get a job You gotta do something man, your ass is grown Drug dealing just to get by Stack your money till it gets sky high Still hustle cause a nigga can't shine all 655 And everybody selling makeup, Jacobs and bootleg tapes Just to get they cake up We put shit on layaway, then come back We claim other people, kids on our income tax We take that money, cop work, then push packs to get paid And we don't care what people say Mama say she wanna move south Scratching lottery tickets, eyes on a new house Around the same time, Joe ran up in dual house Couldn't get a job so since he couldn't get work, he figured he'd take work The drug game, bulimic, it's hard to get weight So niggas' money is homo, it's hard to get straight But we gon' keep baking till the day we get cake And we don't care what people say My niggas drug dealing just to get by yeah. Stack your money till it gets high 
the food. When you stop the programs for after school. And they DCFS, some of them dyslexic. They favorite 50 cents on 12 questions. We scream, watch blows, we par. See, now we smart. We ain't retards the way teachers start. Hold up, hold fast. We make more cash. Now tell my mama I belong in that slow class. Sad enough, we on welfare. You trying to put me on a school bus with the space for the wheelchair. I'm trying to get the car with the chromey wheels here. You trying to cut our lights out like we don't live here. Look at what's handed us. Fathers abandon us. When we get them hammers, gonna call the ambulance. Sometimes I feel no one in this world understands us. But we don't care what people say. My niggas. Show me. 